Hey everybody, we are Francis, Martin, and Robert, and this is Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Get ready, we're about to live in your head rent-free. Welcome back to Snakes and Otters. This is episode 52. I'm Francis, sitting in the captain's chair. I'm, I'm Martin. Martin. I'm Martin. Yeah, I'm Martin. I'm Robert. <clears throat> I've had a little bit too much bourbon already, I can see. I was wondering if we were ever going to do that. We've always been so good. It's when I don't go last that messes everything up for some reason. We usually take the right order, Martin, yeah. Robert, and Francis, but since I'm the captain, we'll start it off. And okay, fine. But you guys know who we all are by now. This is 51 episodes, for goodness sakes. 52. Thank you for being with us. 52, excuse me, yeah. 52. Uh, 52 this is 52, that's right. Uh, we're going pop culture this time around. Uh, it, it's back that fourth week of the month, and... Uh, we're going to do something a little different. We're always trying to do something a little different here. We don't want to be particularly predictable. But we're going to talk. I'm going to pull this one out. I'm captaining this one here. Uh, something that I'm interested in. The other guys a little bit less so, but that's kind of one of the magic of how this works sometimes. I want to talk about samurai cinema and some of the great movies made uh, in the, uh, regarding the samurai subject, regarding the time period of Japanese movies in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, really, the work of great cinema directors like Akira Kurosawa, uh, great actors like Toshiro Mifune, and stuff that we in the West, some of us know, but so many of us don't, and they should. It is really good cinema. Because it was made outside the Hollywood system, it doesn't get the play that it should sometimes. And we're here to correct that a little bit. So that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to bring this up. And the guys happily went along. Well, I don't know about happily, but they, they went along with it anyway uh, to try and say, okay, let's uh, show us what you got. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about samurai cinema. And it's a fascinating subject. It really is. I want to give you a background first, as we often do on these episodes. Where did I get started with this? You all may remember, uh, because it's still around, the Independent Film Channel, IFC. It's probably on your cable system even today. It's very different today than it was 20 years ago. But in the mid, uh, early 2000s, early aughts, uh, less than 20 years, but around that time, uh, they were, it, was, it like so many other um, of the startup uh, lesser-known cable channels would bring in reruns from whatever they could get a hold of that kind of fit into their idiom. And one of the things that uh, that the IFC did on Saturday mornings, they would run what they called Samurai Saturdays. And they would run from like 8 in the morning until noon, 2 or 3, depending on how it all worked, because they were commercial-free at the time. Uh, samurai movies from the great samurai cinema classics, most of which are black and white. And I, by some wild chance, saw the commercial and said, okay, what's going on on Saturday morning? Not much. Let's give it a shot. And I sat down and was hooked immediately. Uh, and the first movie that I saw, uh, I eventually began taping because I couldn't always watch them on Saturdays, but I really got to the point where I really want to see these movies. There's a huge number of them. They were all made in Japan. Uh, they were made by Japanese film companies. We know some of them uh, because uh, there are certain things that, uh, like the Godzilla movies, uh, they're owned by Togo uh, 
from Japan. Uh, so it has to have partnerships with uh, American cinema to get these new movies made. But a lot of these they would just make on their own, and they went to their own history to do this. And The, the Hidden Fortress was the first movie that I saw. And little did I know, that was one of the major inspirational movies for Star Wars. Uh, George Lucas was a huge fan of the concept, and the story itself is in many respects very similar to searching for the the hidden fortress, or Death Star as it were, and destroying it and bringing out the story of the hero's journey that went with it. Uh, it was an amazing influence. And that's when I, the deeper I got, the more I realized there's a lot of influence here. Martin? Yeah, so that's super background of your interest. But let's give a little more of a general background of the genre itself. Is that cool? Go ahead. So these films, they bridge a period around World War II. They did start, Japanese cinema did start with these before the war. But the ones we really know are after the war. Right. And that's, you know, that's an interesting dichotomy there because after the war... Japan's a defeated country being rebuilt in our image. That's the thing that I always like to say about the post-World War II world. You know, Germany's being rebuilt in our image. Um, Japan's being rebuilt in our image. Kind of that uh, almost a theological thing, uh, you know, humanity created in, in God's image. Um, so they're they're searching for this identity, and they... Samurai films are a period piece, yes. um, what we would call the historical epic, but they're, they focus on a particular period in Japanese history called the Tokugawa Shogunate. That's a period from... <laughs> I hope yeah. I'm pronouncing it somewhere close to the I right I think way. you're right. I think you're right, yeah. So Tokugawa uh, means the era from 1600 to the 1860s, uh, that Japan is dominated by the shoguns and the this feudal system that they have. And as uh, people know, samurai are the warriors pledged to the shoguns. Uh, and 1868 is the demark because that is the period of the restoration of the emperor and a, a huge change in Japanese society where they are attempting to modernize and move away from feudalism. And uh, so all of these films are set during this 260-year period and are heavily influenced then by this idea of Japan as a defeated nation um, they become, these films become much more action-based, mm -hmm. darker, more violent, which, interestingly to me, mirrors what's happening in Western cinema as well. Uh, as we know, Western cinema, starting in the late 60s, is going through its own transformation mm -hmm. from... Uh, sort of the straightforward hero-type films into this revisionist era uh, and this cinema verite era uh, and through the early 70s. So I think there's a lot of parallels there mm -hmm. that 
that's part of what hooked your interest, Francis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it transcended culture. And ironically, the Japanese story, uh, the samurai story, in many respects is not that different from the feudal knights. Uh, But it is done in such a vastly different and unique manner that it captures our attention very easily. You can tell these stories because there's a code there. That is, uh, which is the Bushido code, which is the code of honor that is and I, my opinion, far stronger in Japanese society than it was in medieval society. Uh, and it, it, it easily transforms and influences the American Western genre, which we're going to talk about yep. that next month, actually, uh, because that is his, its own story. But there's a lot of recognition, that, and Robert has talked about this many times, that a good story is a good story is a good story, and yep. it has certain things that it beats that it hits. What's really cool about this is, it does it in a completely new way for Western eyes that keeps it fresh. That's one of the reasons I think that, that hooked me on that. Is it new primarily because of the setting, though, or are the stories themselves really new? That's what I would question. Because uh, both. There's a lot of parallels with, with Westerns. There's a lot of parallels with other societies that we could draw. So, you know, it goes back to what you're saying. Yeah, yeah I have said before. Good story is a good story, uh, no matter what the setting. You can take any story and change the, the setting and the, the location, and you can still say, tell the same story. You change the genre, and you can essentially mm-hmm. tell the same story. Uh, those aren't necessarily externals, but they can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think about samurai movies. To me, a samurai has a lot of parallels with uh, the gunfighter in the West. Yes, it does. Obviously. Uh, you know, you, it, it's got that, uh, it, in many ways, it could be portrayed as the anti-hero uh, uh, as well, which, you know, a lot of gunfighters are anti-heroes, uh, not quite as violent as we would consider them today. Right. Th- that arose in the 70s in many respects in the Westerns. Uh, there weren't so yeah. much before that. Right. Well, well, I mean, they were still a form of anti-hero. You look at the Lone Ranger, he's an anti-hero as well. That's as true. Him. That's right, yeah. Um. So, yeah, I mean, there's these common themes to me, uh, I think, are more fascinating uh, just from a, uh, uh, from a creator standpoint. You know, when you look at uh, those uh, that were influenced, you talk about George Lucas being influenced. Everybody that was in theater uh, 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 and cinema programs at the time uh, that George Lucas was is influenced. So is Steven Spielberg. Uh, all of their contemporaries were uh, heavily influenced by this uh, Akira Kurosawa and this uh, samurai uh, cinema. And mm-hmm. that's a big thing. I think it's one of the reasons why you see so much of this uh, paralleling in um, you know, 80s movies forward. Because uh, obviously, you know, they're in cinema uh, school. In, in the well, really, 60s movies forward. Well, yeah, because th- yeah, it would have started before that. I'm talking about those guys that are uh, in the 70s, the, you know, those contemporaries oh. of Lucas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, when they right. But, uh, yeah, because Kurosawa was, in many respects, he's 50s and early 60s and through the 60s. Yeah. But the Japanese cinema itself, uh, and, I, and uh, Martin, you mentioned this a little bit, during the war, they were making movies during the war uh, and before that, and there was a, a huge title shift. And I'll give you one. We've talked about this in the show prep. It's really worth your time to watch, but it's very different. It's called 47 Ronin. It was made in 1941. It was released seven days before Pearl Harbor was bombed. 
believe it or not. Uh, part one. It's a two-part movie. Uh, it's about three hours long. You can see it. And it was, in, it was actually commissioned by the Japanese imperial government at the time, meant to be a rah-rah, a be a this is who we are and we're, we are flat, badass people. It was meant to be a propaganda piece, taking a nationally known uh, st historical event and story that was within the national consciousness. And they gave it to a director, uh, whose name I don't have in front of me right now, who adapted it from a very dark, cerebral play about the story because it had been adapted in many ways at many times and it flopped terribly and they went ahead and put it out and it's an amazingly different cinema because it's very nihilistic it's very dark uh, it's not in any way all that influential uh, except as a historical piece to give you an insight into what in the mind what was in the mindset at that time and as Martin as you said all that changed Mm -hmm. afterwards. And by the time Kurosawa comes along, and, uh, and you're talking about in the 50s at this point, he takes it and says, we can do better than that. And he puts out you know, some amazing movies uh, 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 along with, thank you for uh, Chiro Mifune for being such a great star that worked with him on so many of these things. Uh, but there's so many. Uh, Yojimbo was one. I know, Martin, that's one of your favorites because it's a, it's a direct uh, it's a direct well, all right, I'll say it. It was it, stolen. Yeah, flip it the other way. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, make sure. A fistful it, of dollars is a direct steal of the film Yojimbo. That's right, yes, which was done some time before. And, in fact, Sergio Leone got sued uh, mm -hmm. and lost for that. Uh, he made a great movie because it was a great story, but Toshiro Mifune and Akira Kurosawa did a great job before that. Uh, there's many others. Uh, I, one we haven't mentioned much on, there's a trilogy uh, with Mifune, called the uh, Miyamoto Musashi Trilogy. There's actually three movies. It's in color, surprisingly. It was fairly big budget at the time. It's kind of like the ultimate samurai movie about the ultimate samurai historical figure and how he comes from being a nobody into being this great uh, samurai leader. Uh, and it, it's, it's an amazingly beautiful... It's a love story. It's, a, it's the hero's journey. It's very great with its stoicism and had the virtues of that and also the not-so-great things about it because it gets in the way of, of love and uh, happiness and all sorts of stuff like that. So all those universal themes that we like so much are on display in these movies. Uh, and um, uh, there's the, the, just so many different ones. Uh, Martin, you might want to tell us your favorite, because you've got... Uh, uh, which is kind of like the greatest of all. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I'll just mention, I mean, the main thing to, to, to think about or, or to mention here, Kurosawa is the giant. Yes. Uh, yes. Lots of people have heard his name. They may not understand what his contribution is, but the post-war uh, samurai cinema is Kurosawa's legacy. Yes. Um, he is the, the, the center of it. And like you mentioned... Um, he's influenced by John Ford, a pre-war American director, and he is kind of Lucas Spielberg, John Ford, all the great Western directors kind of rolled into one guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, he's he's it. And Kurosawa's legacy includes films like Seven Samurai, um, which The Magnificent Seven, one of my favorite Western films, is directly lifted from basically. Um, Throne of Blood, which is a Japanese version of Macbeth, 
is oh, beautifully awesome, done too. Yeah. Awesome film. Yes, uh, the arrow scene at the end of that is absolutely amazing, and yeah. it's one of those things that's talked about in all cinemas. You don't have any scene like that in the 1950s, where the movie ends with the with the the villain being inviscerated by thousands of arrows. And Toshiro Mifune plays Macbeth, uh, you know, at, in in the in the play, and it's to see this death scene is whoa! You just yeah. can't think of anything like that before or since, really. Uh, that's just him. That's yeah. just Mifune. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, we talked about Hidden Fortress, again, an inspiration for Star Wars. And then from there you got Yojimbo. And the interesting thing, again, Yojimbo, Sergio Leone lifts a fistful of dollars almost directly from Yojimbo. Um, but it's, again, this uh, revisionist idea of this anti-hero that you don't even know his name. Right. Right. Uh, the Clint Eastwood character in um, A Fistful of Dollars never really says who he is. That's right. Well, he's known as the man with no name. Yeah, the man with no name. And that originates from Kurosawa and these yeah. films because in Yojimbo, the character makes up a name because he's standing in a mulberry field. And he basically says, my name is Mulberry. He's the, he's the man with no name, the, the samurai with no name. Yeah. And that is a consistent theme through these post-war period pieces is this, this sense of this man that's isolated. Uh, Ronin, you mentioned 47 Ronin. Uh, if people aren't familiar with that term, that is a term for a samurai without a master. A samurai is a soldier that is pledged to a shogun master. When you no longer are needed as a soldier uh, because, again, during this period of this feudal Japan, that there's no civil war, there's, there's no warring uh, on this island of, of Japan. These, these samurai have no purpose anymore. Right. They, they're trained as warriors. You take war away from a warrior, what do you have? You have yeah, a, or a, your a, master goes down in disgrace and something yeah. happens to him, and that's kind of the story behind 47 Ronin yeah. is these guys all of a sudden, uh, their master goes down uh, uh, by a plot uh, by his rival and ends up committing seppuku, you know, uh, Harry <laughs> Carey, uh, because of this in, in, in disgrace, and the Ronin decide we will, you know, because they're now Ronin, because they're now masterless, yeah. they decide we will get revenge for him against this evil this evil man who did this, no matter how long it takes, and it does take a serious amount of time, and they all yeah. end up, uh, it's one of those great stories of honor, revenge, uh, and patience, and planning, and uh, all those great themes that make great stories uh, yeah. go American into that. audiences probably will not like the end of that movie. <clears throat> no, they won't. Because to us, getting revenge should be the end of that movie. Mm-hmm. In true Japanese fashion, yeah. the 47 Ronin also commit seppuku because they have committed murder. Yeah. Now, you can argue whether it's murder or not, right. but according to Japanese law, it would be. Okay. It's one of the things that may, is so culturally different uh, of how America would make that movie versus how Japan made that movie. And that's one of the things yeah. I find fascinating. It's because you're right. Well, when we do that, they realize, okay, we've taken revenge as our code calls us to. Now we have to commit suicide as our code calls us to because we did wrong to do right. 
And that's morally ambiguous to us Americans. Yeah. We don't like that. Yeah. And uh, that's, uh, that's what makes it so fascinating because it, it takes these moral issues and doesn't turn them on their head necessarily. It just shows us some things are cultural, some things aren't. But, wow, what an exploration. There's, there's the beating heart there. Yeah. It fed directly into that whole period of the 1960, uh, 60s and 70s revisionist Western the whole idea of um, there's sometimes what is right we don't know, and the Ronin again that that samurai that soldier that goes from having a master to having no master what's his purpose he's searching for something and you that makes so intriguing a transfer to the western mm-hmm. um, but that's that's the part of this that I find so fascinating is. Here's this defeated country searching for a future, searching mm-hmm. for a purpose, and here are these films, and their central characters are doing just that. They have mm-hmm. no purpose any longer. They're searching for a future, and uh, um, it, it's just it's how one man like Kurosawa then can grasp that point and mm-hmm. put that forward in these in these films. And then again, to, to see somebody like Sergio Leone or, or Clint Eastwood translate that to a genre the West understands in the Western film. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think we can uh, underestimate the, the, the meaning for being a defeated people for Japan at the end of World War II. I think you're uh, right. Again, it is so culturally different uh, for World War II era Japan, not post-war, but current World War II era and right. prior, how they looked at war, how they looked at those who won and those who lost. Um, I think we've talked about it before, but especially when you're talking about um, a defeated people trying to figure out their place in the world and making movies about defeated people trying to figure out their place in the world. It's how they're mm-hmm. working this out. You, know, you cannot underestimate the mindset of a Japanese soldier, a samurai, because they mm-hmm. saw them, the serious guys really saw themselves as samurai, especially the officers. They were absolutely, dead. yeah, they were the elite yeah. uh, that did that did what they did better than anybody else. Right. You know, what, I mean, it's cliched, but it's cliche based in fact. Officers carried swords. You know, mm-hmm. so I mean, they saw themselves as modern day samurai, and if you lost, you just didn't lose a battle. You lost your your personhood, your manhood, mm-hmm. uh, when you did, and that's not something that uh, the American mind and the Western mind, I think, really grasps well enough when we look at um, how the Japanese and why, and why the Japanese behaved how they did during the war. Uh, the rape of Nanking is a, is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you lose, you are no longer a person. Therefore, for, from that. Now, granted, even that was way beyond the pale for them, but it's an outgrowth of that that attitude that the loser is not real anymore. And so it's easier to see how you slide down that slope into something like the rape of Nanking. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the treatment of Western prisoners throughout Western the war. Prisoners. Yes, the whole bit. It makes it understandable in the sense you can see the reasoning, not understandable in that it's reasonable. Right. Uh, well, I think it's also, 
it's also a cry for acceptance on the world stage in many ways. It's trying to show we may have been defeated, we may have done terrible things as part of the war, but we as a people are capable of being better than that. We've been better than that, and we are capable of being uh, the, uh, the Japanese people. Uh, right, but, I mean, doing the movies is this cry for... Yes, it, well, the stories that they're trying to tell, saying we are an honorable people, and don't judge us by what just happened. Judge us by some other, you know, get to know us much better than that. Now, I don't know if that was necessarily the intention, I think, because these were made for Japanese audiences atten intentionally. And maybe that's, uh, maybe it's a subtext that I'm reading into it uh, at many years after the fact. But I do think it serves in any effect to recognize that the Japanese culture is not something that we need to uh, demonize, which was done during the war, we should understand that it is they're much deeper than that, and they are not should not be judged by things like the rape of Nanking, uh, which for a long time you know you get movies like The Bridge Over the River Kwai, which even in the 60s was still demonizing the Japanese during the war. Well, that's uh, because a lot of those guys making the movies were the guys that were either in that or sure uh, were, were were new guys that mm -hmm. were in that. You know, Absolutely. I don't know that. Again, I'm not well-read enough to know this, uh, so I can't agree or entirely disagree that that was their cry for acceptance so much as it to the world, so much as it was trying to find a self-identity again. And when you do that, I think you look back to times when you were, when you saw yourself as better, when you saw yeah. yourself as great. That's Absolutely. one of the reasons why historicals are always popular mm -hmm. because they hearken back to a time when something uh, was either better or more noble, whether it was the, the people in it were more noble or the cause was more noble. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of literature is like that. Uh, you know, Southern literature after uh, the Civil War romanticized the Civil War and the, the South antebellum uh, before the war. Yes. Oh, Gone with the Wind's a great example of that. Yeah. Because they are trying to uh, come to terms with the fact that they lost and come to terms with, you know, we weren't really as bad as, as so bad that we had to lose. Uh, I think there's some of that with it. Again, yeah. that's a little bit of conjecture on my part, but I think that's a little bit more, honestly, I think, that, I, I think that's a bit more um, plausible than... Because honestly, I don't know if the Japanese, for, for at least a couple of decades, really cared what the rest of the world thought. They probably didn't understand how the rest of the world could treat them as people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and but you, this is my own speculation, believe me. This is done years after the fact, saying it serves this, this purpose. I don't know if it was intentional or not. That's yeah, a good that question. Yeah, may, after the fact, help. Yeah, but I, that's what I meant. Reason. Yeah, yeah I, th I think it's good. For the, from us in the West, we can use this as that. Uh, to see that, you know, this is, uh, of course, by now, by the time our generation has come along, that ship sailed. We don't think that way anymore. Mm -hmm. But our grandparents certainly thought very differently. My father, in particular, who was 10 years old when the war ended, he believed that the Japanese and the Germans were the absolute most evil creatures on the planet that had ever walked it. And if they themselves, you know, if you were Japanese or German, that was a problem. For him, you know, up until his death, he did not trust them. He was he was baked in that mindset of World War II, 
uh, destroy the Hun, destroy the Nip, whatever you want to say. That's right. uh, that's where that's where he was, and we well, as our generation, you know, do we trust yep. the the Russians? You know, we uh, yeah, the that's correct. It, it's it's a very difficult thing do for they us. They trust us. <laughs> there's, do there's trust, a good question. Do we trust Saudis? Do we trust right? You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, except the, the, you know, not trusting the other, uh, that's normal for us. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm liking to think that, you know, the, so, the story should end better for all of us. The hatreds that we have at any given moment in time, distrust or whatever, whether it be strong like a war or just distrust in general, is overcomable. And things like good cinema help us do that. Things like these other cultural cinemas that we see uh, is is fascinating to me, uh, yeah. and uh, and these and these are actually good rousing adventure stories. Don't get me wrong. Uh, any any sword any sword play uh, on screen is going to be fun if it's done well. And believe me, some of these are just absolutely amazingly so. Uh, they were also cheap to make. Uh, because they had plenty of these costumes around, so it was they could they were able to flood the market very quickly in the 50s and 60s. You know these movies are coming out all the time, and not all of them were of the great cinematic quality uh, that Seven Samurai, for example, was done. That's a major event. Whereas some of the others, you know, it was uh, you can go through some of these lists. You know, the Samurai Banners, Red Lions, uh, Goyoikin, you know, Hikatori. Uh, for example, one I was telling Martin about earlier uh, is the Zatoichi series, which is about a blind swordsman. They made 28 of these movies <laughs> with the same characters because he's badass. He, you know, the, the one that I saw, the first one I saw, I don't remember the number of it. Uh, he takes on like 14 guys and kills every single one of them, and he's blind. Uh, and it's just kind of all right. I'm along for this ride. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean these served a purpose of they were everything. They were yeah. big time movies. They were drive-in type movies. I mean we have the same thing. They just we we skip genres around. You know we sure. we we had uh, uh, White Lightning and Gator. You know or we have sure. these. You know, drive-in movies about porkies, you know, things like that. Yeah, I mean, that that were not meant for any any redeeming quality other than (laughs) you know people are going to show up to see this stuff. Yeah, you know, know, there's a difference between American cinema and Japanese cinema uh, through a certain point in one very big way, and that is that our culture is a huge amalgamation of so many different groups. Japanese culture was very monolithic. Yeah, very homogenous. Yeah. So it, it, this this one genre serves all of those purposes, whereas in America we have so many different expressions of these things. Again, straight to drive in, you know, action films, and but especially action films, so many different varieties of action film where some of them are just horrible, stupid, and, and serve only for the gunplay, and then some of them are diehard, and they're awesome. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, you know, become cultural touchstones. Right. So, you know, for us, that maybe that's one of the reasons that, that samurai cinema is so fascinating because we look at what is essentially... We probably view it as a single genre. And that's probably not fair to samurai cinema because even though a lot of that is going to be taking place in a relatively small period of time, that period of time is about the length of the history of our country. Yeah. 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 Two hundred so, years. You know, it's probably 
more nuanced than we are seeing it. So when we look at some of these movies and we see, wow, that's just like a Western. Wow, that's just like a cop movie. Wow, that's just like this. Well, it is because it was. That's exactly <laughs> right. It have it's a very everything. similar setting for all of its various genres. Because it oh, yeah. Monolithic, monogamous, homogenous culture. Well, it, it, the setting was very flexible in many ways. This hidden fortress—it's almost—it's got this, the, this, the silly sidekick that goes throughout, which uh, you know has been said to be C-3PO's you know pro- progenitor, uh, where you uh, where you've got this stuff that goes on, and it's it's like the classic westerns that were being made in the 20s and 30s, where you've got you know the singing cowboy and his sidekick, the Roy Rogers and stuff like that. A yeah. lot of this stuff is all put together in certain ways because that's what people know. And so, uh, but you can do the silly movies. Net, you can do this the trilogy, uh, the Mushashi Mamoto uh, trilogy, which is an amazingly in-depth story. The hero's journey. It's 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 Odysseus. You know, it's it's all these things put together. And yet you can have Seven Samurai, which is the classic buddy cop movie uh, that translates so well. It's, it still yeah. is the standard. If you had to pick one movie. Out of all this, that was the greatest. I'd probably have to say Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai. So well, what you're telling me? Know. Yeah. So what you're telling me is that Jar Jar Binks is directly lifted from Akira Kurosawa. I was just thinking that. Oh God. <laughs> that was well. That was done later. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I would say C-3PO is is more okay. the uh, is more the okay. uh, thing because Star Wars itself, the first movie, was what was influenced by the hidden forces. Yeah, the first. After that, that, but that's just it, though. That goes back to, to some of the points that I've made about stories many times, uh, and that is that the elements of a good story uh, repeat. Mm-hmm. And so that silly sidekick or silly commentator, Jar Jar Binks and C-3PO and the, the guy, yeah. it's the same thing. I mean, yeah. it, it's Sancho Panza, it's the porter yeah. scene in, in Macbeth, that's what the porter scene does. You've built up all this huge tension, and then you have this goofball scene in the middle. Right. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are C-3PO and R2-D2. Yeah. Know? Well, absolutely. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, very much absolutely. so. Absolutely. Yeah, because so, you've got to break the tension up some way. You have to give the audience a, a way off the hook to start building it back up again. Yeah, right. Osric and Hamlet was the same way, played by uh, Robin Williams in Kenneth Branagh's awesome 96 movie. You couldn't have asked for a better point because it's the silliest. It's usually cut, but wow, Robin Williams played it so well. You know, and that's why uh, these things can be so appealing, uh, even though they have to be dubbed or we have to, to watch the uh, uh, closed captioning on it uh, to be able to understand the language, you know, the words that are being said. Mm-hmm. But the stories, you know, a good story that is a buddy cop movie. We know what elements are that make that Absolutely. up. Absolutely. And we know when something is missing. We know when there is a hero's journey, when there's a reluctant hero, because he's always reluctant in the hero's journey. Yep. Uh, he has to undertake this quest. And that's Luke Skywalker. Mm-hmm. You know, that is so many others. You know, so in a love story, we know that there's got to be certain elements. And it doesn't matter what the language or the culture that produced it. People get this. It's one of the universalities of the human condition. And the man who feels outside of society is another archetype that we can relate to. 
Mm-hmm. Again, every character in the Magnificent Seven or Seven Samurai, these are all people who are loners. Their their motivations vary, but they're all outside. Mm-hmm. They're not they're not the people who build anything. But they have to find some kind of purpose. You know, I just realized Kelly's Heroes is also that same story. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Very much it is, yes. Yeah. Kelly's Heroes. Um, it's just it's taken a little bit on a sideways track, but it's the same story. That's right. But we recognize the themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I think it's useful, uh, not just as an uh, intellectual exercise, but I think it's useful uh, to understand other people's that we can see these things in the storytelling of other cultures. Because one of the things that defines a culture is the ability to tell common stories. You are not a civilization until you have a shared set of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it just doesn't work unless you do, because you have to have that, that bedrock to build on. And uh, one of the things, if we can recognize these, hey, they've got the same damn stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an important thing for yeah. building a, a an understanding. Today, the U.S. and, and Japan are close allies. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought that when we dropped the atomic bomb twice on them? That's right. And then, it, yeah, yeah. It, and maybe there's the irony the that finds this whole concept so fascinating to mm-hmm. me. Is that how could we possibly do that? And yet, th- within ten years, fifteen years, they're making great stuff that we're watching, and they're continuing to watch even today. Uh, well, that we're stealing. Within 20 years, we're stealing. The West is stealing well, yeah, that's their right. stories. Uh, Which again, our yeah. stories, too. I mean, yeah. you know. <laughs> you, know uh, uh, you know, Jimbo is from 61, mm-hmm. and A Fistful of Dollars, I think, is from 64 or 65. Yeah, it's that's, a short walk. That's, you know, like I said, that's 20 years at the, after the end of the war, uh, this is a people who should hate our guts. We 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 flatten two cities with one airplane apiece. Yet we've become where we don't feel there's any kind of cultural separation with Japan anymore. They're us. We're them. They they feel almost part of the West now. They do uh, now. They still and, have their own distinctiveness, which is a which is a good thing in my opinion. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. You're and right. You're absolutely they right. play baseball at a high level. You don't get much more American than that. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of cultural cross-contamination, so to speak, not contamination in a bad way. Cult- yeah. Cross-colonization. Yeah, there you go. It's uh, the melting pot. It's the best part of the melting pot, like we talked about. Yeah. Um, you know, Some when we can... Are, are, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Yeah, yeah. It's It's... Let's throw everything in the pot on the stove and find that common flavor and embrace the humanity between all these different things because people are people uh, and we all have the same story. We all have the yeah, same background. They have good stories too, and they're almost the same story as ours. The, same, the now, same story. I'm going to go a little bit deep here with some commentary and you know maybe this is me being my hammer roll but um, I love it hammer do it do it hammer Hammer time one of the things that I find interesting about this is that 
when you look at the individual pieces of the, what we've talked about, it's, you know, they're all fascinating and interesting if you're into that. But I think what is more fascinating is that what it says about who we are as an American people, uh, for the most part, as well as how we have related to those that we have been in conflict with and those that we are still in conflict with. So, um, so those we have been in conflict with is not just Germany, Japan, Great Britain, you know, the major wars we have fought, but even internally. Once we start recognizing that common humanity, recognizing that we all have similar stories, um, how we deal with people change. I think that's part of what changed with the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. uh, how Absolutely. we treat minorities. Uh, I think that's uh, similar to what you see in how uh, the LGBTQ whatever. How I don't. I can't keep up with all the different. Uh, yeah, I don't know that. But I think you're seeing something similar there. Now, um, you know where all of these things end up. Uh, who knows? And you know, I don't want to get into the the moral and, and theological arguments on any of these. But I think you're seeing that same kind of journey uh, play out. And in each case, whether it being recognizing that, uh, that those people that, that were enslaved, uh, those people brought from Africa, that we, whether we call them blacks, Negroes, African Americans, whatever, that they are just as human as the rest of us. Mm -hmm. uh, same is true for those that are trying to come into this country uh, from the southern border. They are still people just like us. Amen. And always have been. And always have been. And I think as, as we move from conflict to a more productive, in the sense, beneficial, not uh, uh, in a um, uh, utilitarian fashion, but in a more productive uh, relationship, uh, that's inevitable. Where we still have conflict... Are ones are places where we have yet to be able to fully realize that kind of development of our relationship. We don't have that same kind of development with the Chinese, and I don't say that because of the COVID-19 thing, because uh, that that predates that, uh, or with the Russians, or with a good deal of the the Muslim world in the Middle East and, yeah. and where they predominate. We don't have a sense of shared stories and culture with them. Because just like with pre-war Japan, we view the world differently. Uh, not as much with Russia, but certainly with uh, China and the Muslim world. Well, uh, it, it's a, you know, how we view God is different uh, yeah. in the Muslim world. It's, you know, master versus father. And that's very oversimplifying it, but that's a, a major aspect. And, you know, this whole idea that we can, within 20 years... Uh, make friends with a culture that is so radically different. In many ways, that's a very hopeful sign for Indeed. not just the United States, but people all over. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. managed to find that common ground, and now we are allies. It is unthinkable that we would go to war with Japan or Germany or Great Britain or France. Well, mainly because yeah. France couldn't put up a fight, but you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean people are people, and we all suck. The sooner we realize that, the better uh, off we're all going to be. Yeah. Right. We all so, suck, but you know, the best of us are trying to be better. We're trying, trying to get better. We're trying not to suck. Uh, right, so, right. gentlemen, uh, have we talked about bourbon yet this episode? We have not. So, I am, uh, again, 
cracking open the bottle of larceny. Um, I have a bottle of bullet I'm saving for when we can get back together in person and share, because bourbon is always better shared. Amen to that. Um, but, uh, you know, with the being on isolation listeners, if the audio is not quite to our previous quality, that's because we are doing this as an online thing. Um, but, uh, Francis, what have you got? Oh, I, I just finished off the last of my 1792. I took the last swallow uh, just a few minutes ago. So uh, thanks to the great folks from Blackout Bourbon for providing that to us. Uh, yes, it was well-loved and well-shared. Most of it was shared. Uh, I didn't have much left over because we have drank yeah. a significant amount of it. So I just finished it off and did my duty and uh, ready to go something fresh next time, for me anyway. Yeah, I, uh, I finished off my um, uh, last bit of my uh, Woodford, or the, last, the glass I was drinking. I, I just finished... Uh, Regular Woodford Reserve. You know, Woodford is one of my go-to bourbons. Um, uh, the regular Woodford as well as the double-oaked. Yeah, I mean, the, the more I have of this larceny... It was very the, good, I remember. Yeah, yeah, the more strongly I'm I'm recommending this. Woo, doggy, that's smooth stuff. Yeah, that's we got that on our trip to St. Minerid. Uh, so that will always have a special place in my heart. You yeah. know... We need to schedule that uh, when the lockdown is done. We need to schedule another trip to, to St. Minor. Maybe make that an annual thing. Hey, another another road trip. Way. Another. Uh, yeah. We need to do some more because uh, uh, we already committed ourselves to a mission of uh, trying to find PJ O'Rourke for me and <laughs> 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 having a bourbon with him. So, uh, Francis, do you think we covered everything here? With uh, we did. We're forty-five minutes in. We we managed it very very well. Uh, we cannot do justice to the great genre that it is, of course. Uh, yeah. But if we encourage a few people to watch a few of these great movies, uh, uh, it, it's worth your time. It really you is mean, worth yeah, your time. Yeah, I mean, you've sold me. I, I need to get back into this and see if I can find, again, Seven Samurai, Yojimbo. Those are the biggies. Um, Throne of Blood again, is always awesome. Akira Kurosawa. Pardon there, uh, Robert? Oh, sorry. Uh, it, sometimes it's hard to tell uh, by the picture. Uh, and then we start talking over each other. Um, but, you know, so a lot of this is done in comics as well. Uh, Yojimbo was done in, in, in comics. Uh, Lone Wolf yep. and Cub is, a, is another major one. Absolutely, that's uh, right. Done, uh, by Frank Miller. So, you know, uh, this genre uh, of samurai uh, cinema, this really does touch far and wide just like uh, so many other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, that's why it's and worth just, a little uh, time. Yeah, and just, you know, again, the, the giant the guy that is the everything, the Spielberg slash Ford slash Lucas, Coppola, uh, Scorsese of all of this, Akira Kurosawa, uh, a, a huge cultural giant uh, in Japan. So he, he bears a lot of, uh, or, or is worthy of a lot of, of mention there. Yep, so, absolutely. Watch anything he did. You'll enjoy yeah. it. Francis, man, tell us about Episode 53. What's oh, next? Oh, you know, you guys know this one. This is one we've been waiting to have happen. Our first interview episode. We never Hoop-a-joob. do this. Hoopajoob it is. That's Hoop-a-joob. right. So that Hoopajoob, anything can happen. Uh, and we decided to do an interview. Uh, we don't do these easily. We don't do these often. Uh, we think that we're all you need. Uh, but everyone's... Uh, that's right. But we have one of our mutual friends, Emperor Marcus Aurelius, we called him. He is also a uh, Bellarmine graduate at the same time we were all there. We did a two-hour interview with him. Yes, 
Bring some snacks two, and some drinks for this next hours. one because yes. it's two, two hours. It's, it's unedited, which we realized we were taking a significant chance with Marcus, but we went ahead and went with it. And That's we true. have given him the whole time to kind of – it's a retrospective in many ways. It's a uh, universal discussion, as, uh, as all of our discussions always it's, are. It's memory lane. It's, it's everything. Yeah, you know, we are only as good as our stories, as we often say. Well, we've got plenty of stories for you next time, that's for sure. Some of yeah. which we think we've done a good job of giving the context for, so they're as hopefully yeah. as fun for you all to hear as they were for us to experience and hear yeah. ourselves. Now, that one, even though we've already done that one, and so we know what's, what's in it, just a reminder, even though it's two hours, it's done in two parts as far as listening. So you don't have to worry about listening to a two-hour episode straight through. Um, but it's a lot of fun, if nothing yeah. else. Hopefully you enjoy some of the, the, the scurry stories we tell about Mark and the things we've done with Mark. Yeah, all of my good stories revolve around Marcus. Uh, I have no good stories on my own. Yeah, yeah, I am a cipher otherwise until I'm around Marcus. <laughs> and then I have good stories. Thank you, Francis. Good job. Thanks for being with us here every week at Snakes and Otters, a pointless discussion of eternal questions. Be sure to spread the word on your social media accounts. Follow us and retweet us. We are on Instagram and on Twitter at Snakes and Otters. Let your friends know that they can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, and on YouTube. Just search Snakes and Otters Podcast to find us. And please, remember to leave us your comments and reviews. It helps people find us. And you can always send us an email at snakesandotterspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Martin. I'm Robert. And I'm Francis. Catch us next week. Same snake time, same otter channel.